2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 22. The title of the message is, When the King's People Are Unlike the King. When the King's People Are Unlike the King. 2 Samuel 3 and verse 22. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away? And he is already gone. Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David didn't know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him to the side in the gate to speak with him privately. And there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all of his father's house. And let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, they're too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. 
Mahatma Gandhi, India's Hindu leader of the early 1900s, is noted for saying to Christians, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, it is true that Gandhi rejected Christianity, but his assessment here of Christians is true. He's right. We Christians are so unlike our Christ. Now, we long to be like him, and we know that every day he is making us to be more like him. That's why he saved us, to form us daily into the image of Jesus Christ. But we acknowledge also that in this life, on this earth, compared to our perfect king, we will never be as good as Jesus. We are so unlike our king. Now, I want to say a couple of things as a way of introduction. Because it's true that we are so unlike our Christ, it needs to be stated that it is foolish, absolutely foolish, for a person to dismiss the claims of Christianity because of the faults seen in Christian people. Christianity is about Jesus. It's not about Christians. Now, that is no excuse for our failures, neither is that a license for any one of us to jump headfirst into sin. It's simply the nature of Christianity. Followers of Christ are sinners who have been forgiven and are being changed, but we still have a long way to go. I don't know what you're thinking tonight, but if you're trying to dismiss receiving Christ into your life and following him as your Lord and Savior because of what you see as failures in Christianity, I'm telling you that's never going to go away. Every Christian is a failure in terms of sin. Every Christian is going to disappoint you in terms of righteousness and morality. But Christianity is not about Christians. It's not about you. It's not about me. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. So we follow Christ not because of those who follow him. We follow him because of him, because of who he is. I also think it's important to note as we think about this that the advancement of God's kingdom depends on Jesus, not on those who follow him. The advancement of God's kingdom, it depends upon Jesus, not on those who follow him. Now, this can be confusing because the visible form of God's kingdom, the visible form is Christian believers. It's easier for us, especially for unbelievers, to assess Christianity by looking at believers than by looking at Jesus as he is presented in the Bible. 
We recognize that. But, but, but there is a danger here, and, I, and I've, heard it, I've heard it said before, Christianity, maybe you've heard it said, this is memes a lot that people so ignorantly share on social media. They'll say things like, Christianity is only one generation away from extinction. You ever heard that? Read that somewhere? Now, now Ronald Reagan said, freedom is only one generation from extinction. But, but then a bunch of religious people got together and said, hey, if we put Christianity in there, that sounds pretty good too. And so now they say Christianity is just one generation away from extinction. As if to suggest that the advancement of Christianity or even the existence of Christianity is contingent upon Christ's followers. But this could not be further from the truth. The kingdom of God and the progress of Christianity and the advancement of the church, it depends upon Him, not on us. Our wisdom will always fall short. Our abilities will always be less than adequate. Our integrity will always be tainted compared to the perfect integrity and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So it is the character of Jesus Christ that advances his kingdom. Not our character. And then I think it's important to note here that our plans, efforts, and focuses do not always align with the purposes and character of our king. I'm, I'm trying to get you to think about this in line of what, what, what we're going to talk about from the text tonight. When the king's people are unlike the king. When the king's people are unlike the king. All right, so let's, let's back up for the first principle. No one, no one should rightly judge David's kingdom because of what we read Joab did. Neither should anyone rightly judge whether or not they should follow Christ because of what they see Christians do or not do. And then we go to the second thing that we're just talking about and, and thinking through, and that is the advancement, the advancement of God's kingdom, the advancement of David's kingdom in this situation. It, it depended upon David, not upon Joab's actions. And so it is in God's kingdom that you and I belong to. The advancement of God's church, the growth and, and the movement of Christianity throughout the world, that that depends upon Jesus, not on us. And, and then, and then, we see this act that Joab displayed here when his actions did not align with the character of the king. And we have to look ourselves in the mirror when we see this because how true it is that my plans and my efforts and my focuses do not always line up with the purposes and character of King Jesus. It's tempting to believe that our motives are aligned with the king, but so often we think and we act and we choose in a manner that is unlike our king. Now, all of this brings us to our text, and just as we noted above, it would be foolish to judge David's kingdom by looking at Joab. Joab thought he knew better than his king taking matters into his own hands. It's not unlike Jesus' kingdom, that which David's kingdom foreshadows. 
It's foolish, absolutely foolish for you and I as Christians to think that our ways are better than Jesus' ways. But so often we do this. Instead of following the wisdom of God, we follow the wisdom of the world. Instead of living in His strength and power, we strive in our own. Instead of following kindness and gentleness and goodness as Jesus exemplifies for us, our King, most of our days are filled with bitterness, harshness, and downright pride. I am so unlike my King. We are so unlike our King. Now, let me catch us up, and we're going to hit this quickly. I'm forced to. But there's this long civil war going on in the kingdom between the house of David and the house of Saul. And in our last message, we learned that Abner, who, let me remind you, is the right-hand man of Saul, the enemy of David, and the one ultimately responsible for this civil war even taking place. We, we, we discover here that Abner and his king, Ishbosheth had a falling out, which led to Abner making the decision to switch sides. Instead of connecting his wagon to Ishbosheth and Israel, he's going to go over here to Hebron, the tribe of Judah, and go over and follow David. Now, we couldn't tell at the beginning whether or not Abner was being genuine about his new allegiance to David or not. But as the story unfolds, we see more and more that Abner was sincere in placing himself under the authority of David's kingship. So what does David do? He brings Abner in. They negotiate terms. A dinner is held in Abner's honor. And then David sends him away. But he doesn't just send him away. The Bible emphasizes that David sent him away in peace. In peace. They had made peace with one another. It was a reminder that even former Rebels can have peace in the kingdom of God. So our story picks up here in verse 22, and here's the first thing I want you to write down. Joab is upset with the king. Joab is upset with the king. Have you ever been upset with your king? It is true that most of our perceived bitterness toward people and circumstances are, in actual fact, a bitterness toward God for not doing what we think he should do. A bitterness toward God, our King, for doing what we think he should not have done. This is precisely why Joab is upset with David. He's frustrated with his king. Look at it there at verse 22. It says, at that moment, the moment David sent Abner away in peace, at that very moment, the servants of David and Joab, they came came from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But, but Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had already sent him away, and he had gone in peace. And when Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, interesting, they, they, it never precisely tells us exactly who it was who communicated this with Joab, which means what, whatever happened in conversation and dinner between David and Abner, it, it's becoming now the palace gossip. And so they, whoever they are, the gossip, the rumor mirrors going, 
it, it finally occurs to Joab that Abner's been there. And, and here's what they said to Joab. Abner, the son of Ner, he came to the king, and the king has sent him away, and he has gone in peace. And then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Or a better translation of this would be in an accusatory tone is exactly what the original Hebrew is displaying here. He's accusing David. Look at what you did. Look at what you've done. He says, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he's already gone? Surely you realize, or or you do know, King David, what I know, don't you? Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner had come in to deceive you and to know you're going in and coming out and to know all that you're doing. Why did you let him go? You had the perfect opportunity to kill him yourself. You do realize what a dumb move that was. I find two very interesting things and I'm going to note them and we're going to move on. The first thing is this. Joab refuses to acknowledge the peace David made with Abner. Three times in verse 21, 22, and 23, the narrator makes it clear that peace was made. Look at the end of verse 21. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. At the end of verse 22, it says he had gone in peace. At the end of verse 23, it tells us that he's gone in peace. But then in verse 24... Joab comes to the king and says, what have you done? Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away? He should have said, why did you send him away in peace? He doesn't say that. Why did you send him away? And now he's gone. He's refusing to even use the same language. He cannot bring himself to even acknowledging the fact That his enemy had now made peace with his king. He won't even say the words. Has your heart ever been so bitter that you can't even say the person's name? You can't even call the church's name? Oh, Joab. Joab refuses to acknowledge the peace that David made. Here's the second thing I wrote down. Joab accuses King David of being foolish. He inferred in verse 25 that he knew what the king did not know. And so at best here, he is accusing David of being naive. At worst, he's accusing him of being stupid. But there's something deeper here. It's not so much the king's security that Joab is concerned about as it is That Abner is Joab's enemy. Remember, it was Abner who killed Joab's brother, Asahel, in the battle at Gibeon. But that that killing, it it wasn't cold-blooded murder. In fact, it was a wartime death. And it was something, if you'll remember, we looked at in chapter 2 a few weeks ago, that Abner tried to avoid at all costs. He kept telling him, stop, stop, stop. And he wouldn't stop. He kept running and running and chasing However, Joab doesn't see that with great clarity. All he sees is that Abner is his enemy. 
And what troubled Joab most was that Joab's king had treated Joab's enemy as his friend. Remember when Paul became a believer? Saul of Tarsus? And the murmurings around the church? He had to go with other believers just to make sure that they didn't think he was deceiving them and was fixing to wipe out a whole church under the disguise of Christianity. Joab did not like the idea that his enemy had been made peace, had made peace with the king. He's upset. Write down number two, Joab acts out in a way that is unlike the king. Joab acts out in a way that is unlike the king. In fact, Joab is going to do what he has accused Abner of doing. He's going to deceive his king. Verse 26, and Joab had gone from David's presence. When he had left, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Syrah. Now, we don't know what that message is. Who knows what it could have been? It could have been something that, hey, David, David needs you, or uh, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe he was pretending to make amends. But what we do know is that the end of verse 26 says David did not know about any of this. So when Abner returned to Hebron, back to the well of Syrah, Joab took him to a side in the gate to speak with him privately, which was obvious. Abner had no idea what was coming. This is a complete surprise attack. And there he stabbed him in the stomach. And the writer tells us why he did it. So that Abner died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. We see it again in verse 30 reiterated. So Joab and Abisha, that's, that's, that's news, right? We had not seen Abisha yet, but he was there. The two brothers... Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. So that was his true motive. It was never about protecting the king. It was about vengeance. Vengeance. Again, Joab could not envision a kingdom where Abner would be able to live free and at peace with the king himself. And that's what makes this whole scene even more sickening. Joab carries out an unjustifiable verdict of vengeance. And he does it after David declared a verdict of peace with Abner. This was cold-blooded murder. And it was cold-blooded murder after the manner of a self-centered motive. Not only did he act out in a way that is unlike the king, but think about this with me. He attempted to carry out the king's business while not being aligned with the character and purposes of the king. His actions were unlike his king. Write down number three, the king's response to Joab's actions. The king's response to Joab's actions. Brings us to verse 28, and the narrator goes to great length to show us that David had nothing to do with this. In verse 26, again, it says David did not know it. We see it again in verse 28. Afterwards, after all this happened, is when David heard about it. David didn't know, and he had not given Joab any affirmation that this was acceptable. Joab is clearly acting out 
on his own volition. So how did David respond? There's two things that he does here. The first thing that he does is he makes a declaration of innocence on behalf of himself and the kingdom. David declares innocence on behalf of himself and the kingdom. Look at verse 28. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, my kingdom and I are guiltless, guiltless. We are free of liability, free of any offense and its consequences. We are guiltless. Before the Lord forever for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. So let it rest on the head of Joab and all of his father's house. And let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper or who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. In other words, let, let Joab and his family pay for the crime that he's committed. Me and my kingdom had nothing to do with it. In fact, he gets very personal. By declaring this publicly, he is saying point blank to Joab, Joab, you were never acting upon my behalf, and you were not acting in accord with our kingdom. This one is all on you. Think about it. Joab did what so many of us do from time to time. We set, we set ourselves up against the will of the king. We act out of our own volition in complete defiance of the character and purposes of King Jesus. So how does David respond? He makes this declaration of innocence. He makes it clear. Joab acted out on his own. So secondly, David then gives an honorable funeral for the death of Abner. An honorable funeral. Now, this is not the first time we've seen David do this. He did this for Saul, didn't he? And now he's going to do it for Abner. Look at what he says there in verse 31. Then David said to Joab, David said to Joab, it's very, very important. Don't, don't just read through that and forget who he's saying this to, okay? He is saying this to Joab, all right? This is not one of those put handcuffs on him real quick and escort him to the jail. We'll let the family deal with the funeral. No, 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 Jonah, uh, jo jo Joab, there's a lot of J's in the Bible, in fact, in my notes, I just realized a moment ago, I wrote Jacob. I didn't mean Jacob. I mean Joab. He, he says, no, 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 Joab, you're going to have to face the music yourself. So I want you and the people who are with you who are in on this. Look at it there in verse 31. I want you to tear your clothes, gird yourself with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. It's very interesting, and I just need to bring this to attention, and some of your translations already have this in there, but let me just put it in there so you can see what's happening, because this is very fascinating to me. In the original Hebrew, and I'm using the New King James Version, it says in the New King James that David tells him to mourn for Abner, but in the original, it's not the word for, it's the word that we would use in English for before Abner. I think the ESV already has it. It says, I want you to mourn before Abner. Before Abner. Literally, I want you to go mourning before the body of Abner. Before the body of Abner. In other words, David tells Abner he has to lead the funeral procession. And we know that's exactly what he means because look at the very next phrase. It says, and King David followed the coffin, all right? 
So, so what he's done here is, Abner, you tear your clothes, you put your sackcloth on, and you and your men who are responsible for this, you get in front of the body, before the body, and you lead the procession. And I'm going to stand behind the body. Because everybody's going to know that you're responsible for this. And then David's position is to acknowledge before the people that Abner was not his enemy, but his friend. His friend. Can you imagine the humiliation that Joab is feeling? I wish we could just take time to think about what he might have been thinking as the murderer himself leads in the lamenting and mourning of the guy that he killed. So verse 32 says they buried Abner in Hebron. That's fascinating to me. Man, I wish I had more time to talk about this. That's not where he was a chapter ago. He was with Ishbosheth and Saul's palace. But I think this signifies his new relationship. That even though he had a lot of quirks to work out and he wasn't genuinely pure in every right just like any of us are when we come to Christ. This signifies his new relationship. He had really switched sides. And David is going to pay homage to that by burying him in David's domain, Hebron. And the king, verse 32, lifted up his voice and he wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. So the leader's weeping and the people are weeping. And then David sings a lament over Abner. And this is what he sings. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. And so David sings this and weeps. And then all the people sing and weep. And verse 35 says that all the people came to be persuaded that David eat the food while it was still day. David took an oath saying, I'll not do it. It's interesting. Joab had treated his king like a fool. Then he treated Abner like a fool. But it was Joab who was the fool. All right, last thing and we're done. Number four, understanding the nature of our king. Understanding the nature of our king. Again, David and his kingdom, it foreshadows Jesus and his kingdom. So it's in scenes like this that we not only get a glimpse of David, but we see perfect fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The Bible's a book about Jesus. So in all these Old Testament narratives, it's not about us. Remember, we've gone over this so many times. It's not about us slaying the giants in our lives. This is a book about what Jesus does for us. And in this case, it is, a, it is the perfect fulfillment of his kingdom. And so we have to step back and ask ourselves as we look at David and how he responds to this entire situation, what is it about the nature of our king that makes us so unlike him? Joab was so unlike David. What is it about Jesus that makes us so unlike him? Three things. One, our king is good. He's always good. Everything he does is good. This is the image that the narrator is giving us of King David, where Joab did not act out in goodness. 
the king did. Look at it there in verse 36. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all of Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. In other words, the people saw that their king was good. It pleased them. It pleased them. They saw that their king was good. Everything he did was good. He didn't act out the way Joab did. It was not his intention to kill Abner. No, it is always God's intention and action to bring about good. He worketh all things for good because he is good. And so much of what you and I do in our homes and our relationships, let's just be honest, we're not like our king. Because sometimes we say things we know are not good. We act out in ways we know are not good. We are Joab. Trying to take vengeance on our own enemies. Yet the king, the king, he always does good. He always makes Peace with those who are repentant of their ways. Our king is good. Our king, number two, is gracious. He is gracious. Verse 38, the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? The word prince, it could be translated so many different things. Commander, leader, ruler. I think what David is saying here is that Abner was a great leader. Abner was a great commander, and he says publicly to the people, a great leader and a great commander has fallen today in Israel. He doesn't talk about his past. He doesn't say the one who started this whole war is now dead. No, he acts upon his grace. Lifting up the man who changed allegiances. And that's what he does with you and I. He doesn't drag out our past and stomp all over it. Reminding us and the world of who we once were and who we truly are. No, he sees us. Through the eyes of his grace. I was reminded recently when someone said to me after I brought up a name, it's no one in this congregation, actually preacher talk. And I asked a question about somebody and the first response was, be careful with that guy. Be careful with that guy. I want you to know that when you came to Christ, he doesn't look at your family and your friends and your pastor and say, oh, be careful with that guy. No, he sees you for grace, with eyes of grace. He is so unlike us. He's good. He's gracious. And let's give you this final one. He's gentle. Our king is gentle. Look at what David said in verse 39. Am I weak today? The word weak is gentle. Am I gentle today? Though anointed king, 
And these men, the son of Zeruah, they're too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. In other words, though, though I am the anointed king and could do whatever I choose, I choose to be gentle today. I choose to be weak today. Our king could say the same thing. There is coming a day when King Jesus will pour out wrath and retribution on this earth. But today, he is not that king. Today, he is gentle. Today, he is humble. Today, he chooses to be weak. But notice this. But Zariah's boys, who are Zariah's boys, Joab and Abishai, look at what he says. They are not like me. They're not like me. No, 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 no. They're harsh. They're hard. Hard liners. Hard, fundy, old schoolers. Tote the line. They're hard. They're harsh. They're not kind. The king says, they're not like me. They're not like me. They're not like me. I've thought about that this week. The sons of Zeruah were harder than their king. They were harder than their king. When I think about that, I have to ask myself the question over and over again. It's so convicting because I know the answer. Am I harder? than my king? Am I harder on my children than my king is on me? Am I harder on believers than the king is? Am I harder on the world than the king is? Oh, my king who is good, my king who is gracious, my, my king who is gentle, am I different than that? With shame, I admit, far too often I am. Far too often, like Joab, I'm unlike my king. So what do we learn about all of this? Let me give you two things. One, the kingdom is not dependent on the righteousness of the people, but on the character of the king. May we remember that. The kingdom is not dependent on the righteousness of the people, but on the character of the king. So when the king's people upset us, look around, we're the king's people. When the king's people upset us, when they offend us, when they think, act, and speak in a manner that is unlike the king, we must choose not to fix our eyes on them, but fix our eyes on the good, gracious, and gentle King Jesus. Despite the failures of we, his people, we 
hear a lot in our world today, culture, young people, about deconstructing our faith and how people are falling out of the church ministry because of the failures that they see in church people, church leaders, church pastors. If that's the case, they're looking at the wrong people. You don't quit because I fail you. No, if I fail you, you keep going because you're never looking at me to begin with. You got your eyes on the good, gracious, and gentle king. It's dependent upon him, not me. Same thing with this church. The future of Laurel Baptist Church is not dependent upon me or you. It's dependent upon Jesus. It's a lot to think through. Let me give you one more. Let us be careful not to engage in the king's business in a manner that is unlike the king himself. Let us be careful not to engage in the king's business in a manner that is unlike the king himself. The goodness of Jesus surpasses the goodness of anyone who does anything, even in his name. So we have to pray for spiritual wisdom so that we may walk in a manner worthy of our king, fully pleasing him and bearing fruit to his good work. So often I think the things that we do and say in the name of Jesus is so much unlike him. I don't want to engage in the king's business in a way that misrepresents the king himself. Even on the most delicate and difficult of cultural issues, may I engage in his business like the king and less like me. But even then, we are reminded that it, that it is only by the grace of God that the kingdom advances. Not by us. So the next time somebody says to you, you people are so unlike your Christ. Yeah, all of us are. That's why our eyes fixed on our Christ so may God help us to be more like our king than we are unlike him let's stand together and pray we'll not sing tonight